This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. The Big Interview with Offscript. Okay, we were out on our first Offscript road trip for probably three years. Something like that. Something like that. We're going to go back to 2019 probably. Yeah. And what I mean to do, a, to do a specific interview. And it was with Eddie Hearn. Now, Eddie will be a very familiar name to all of you who love your boxing. You may have heard of him if you have no interest in boxing whatsoever because he's become a bit of a celebrity in his own right. Yeah. He's become a social media kind of meme yes. in his own right. There's a, an account on Twitter called No Context Hearn which kind of clips up all of his famous little sayings. He's got an incredible <laughs> gift of the gab and then applies it to situations that have absolutely no context whatsoever. It's very funny uh, if you are on Twitter. And I do want to say, if you have absolutely no interest in boxing, if you have no interest in sports, let me tell you, I was eating out of this man's hand. I yeah, just are. sat there and listened to him for three hours. He is such a great storyteller. Listen, there will be some context of boxing in this, but really this is about a story of somebody who had a certain kind of upbringing, a certain kind of drive to succeed yeah. and how he managed to do it. This yeah. is really more a story about how somebody's made a certain kind of career. It's the story of a grafter who had no business being a grafter because his dad, Barry, is, of course, the founder of Matchroom Sport, and the one that we would be familiar with, the stereotype, if you like, is of spoilt rich kid grows mm. up in old man's shadow but never gets out from under it. Whereas Eddie Hearn has forced himself through sheer willpower and not wanting to kind of be stuck in that little pigeonhole of, of being that spoilt rich kid who grew up as the son of a legendary promoter and has actually forged his own path in boxing promoting. And, and in a sense, has actually revived or helped revive. He hasn't done it personally himself, but he's certainly played a big role in helping to revive the and, sport. You know, I would never say this to Eddie, or well, maybe it's a question we could have put to him. I actually think he's more than, than stepped out of his father's shadow. You can make a real good argument to say that Eddie, what is the early 40s, is actually well on his way to eclipsing what his father achieved. And that's not to belittle the achievements of Barry Hearn, but, you know, Eddie's, Eddie's a celebrity. Eddie is moved the needle when it comes to boxing. He is a kingpin in boxing and more than that, what he's done for darts with the PDC, the Professional Darts Corporation as well. He's a great bloke. He was superb with us today. We had an hour and 15 minutes with him. And as you guys rightly point out, even if you're not a boxing lover, you'll get an awful lot out of this. We're going to get on to when he met his old man Barry in the ring very shortly. But it started for Eddie, at least his amateur boxing career, which was short-lived, started at the age of 13 in Essex. And here in this first part of our conversation, he recalls his first fight, which would, of course, lead to that famous encounter with his dad. I think I was about 13 and I was at Billericay amateur boxing club that was my local club and I just thought you know, I was hanging around with Nazim Hamid and Eubank and Lennox Lewis and, and I thought I could really fight you know and I was like a beanpole and I was I'll say dreadful but I was pretty limited like I was you know you go down even Billericay there's a lot of kids that were you know, every kid in there was a lot tougher than me right they might not have had shorts and boots as nice as me but they were a lot tougher than me and I started boxing down Billericay. And back then, before you get carded, you would take part in gym bouts. So you would travel or, or another club would travel to your club and you'd all arrive and you'd all get weighed and they'd just match you up. So my first one of those was at Dagnum, which is actually where my dad's from. And they had like carpet tiles on the floor in the ring and it was quite like... Certainly not dangerous or scary, but quite lively. 
like if you imagine, you know, the kids' parents are there and like it's a local Dagnum, you know, and so they said, you're fighting that kid over there. So I looked at him and I thought, I reckon I, I, reckon I can have him, you know. And he was like, so I went over. I mean, this is another reason where like, I, I could never be a boxer. So I'm thinking, I think I'm going to go and have a chat with him, right? I mean, why would you do that? Like, I thought it would be a good idea for mind games. So I went over to him and I said, all right, mate. I said, uh, I'm fighting you. He's like, oh, I might, nice one. And I was like, how many bouts you had? And he went, like, 40. And I went... And he went, what about you? I was like, oh, well, I was 16, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I went back and went, oh, I don't know if my dad. And he's had 40 bouts. And he went, oh, don't worry, son, you'll be fine. So it's funny looking back now because it's so cringe. You know, I had Bitteriki colours were blue. And I, like, I went down to Charlie Magri's shop in Bethnal Green, which was a really famous boxing shop. And I bought like these blue title shorts, so like satin, you know, really bright. And a pair of Lonsdale boots. And people must have been looking at me thinking, look, like, it's like, you know, yeah, full kit, won't, won't say the, uh, the other word that comes, but like, you know, and like this blue vest and, and then I you know, get in the ring and it's packed. And I had me, I had Jim McDonnell, who was one of my dad's boxers at the time. My dad was filming it on a, on a camcorder. Good for me. We don't know where the tapes have gone because it was just in this little cassette thing that you used to sort of put into this other massive camcorder. And they said, and in a blue corner from Billericay. And I thought, like, this is my moment. Eddie Hills. And I was like, oh, my God. I got my name wrong. I can't believe it. Anyway, went out. And the great thing about gym bouts is because they're trying to encourage kids, they don't actually give a winner. So you do three rounds. But obviously, I told everyone that I won because I did win, you know. And But it was quite, it was a, it was a decent fight. Anyway, came out of there. And in the car home, I said to my dad, I can't believe it, you know, Eddie Hills, like they just, they messed up my name. He went, no, I told him, I told him not to call you Hearn because you would have got a pasting. I was like, so he told Billericay Boxing Club, don't introduce him as Hearn because they'll want to kill him. So just, just introduce him as something else. So Hills is what they come up, come up with. And some boxing fans still call me that, like taking the mick. Oh, here he is, Eddie Hills. That you know. So that was pretty much the extent of Eddie's <laughs> boxing career as a as an amateur fighter. But he did find himself squaring off against his dad in the ring at the age of sixteen in what can only be described as a coming of age contest. So we asked how that contest came about, and more importantly, of course, who won. People, people really, especially parents today, they really don't understand you know the the logic behind that. And that was always like, again, going back to. You only win when you deserve to win. So growing up, he said to me, look, when you get to 18, because he used to box a little bit, he was useless as well, but I'm going to take you to the gym and I'm going to give you a hiding, right? And that's going to be like, you're a man now, so welcome and, you know, yeah. And this is where I come from. Yeah, yeah, but, but this is where I come from and I'm going to show you what it's like to come from where I come from because you're soft, kind of thing and you know so I'm like alright and I just you know okay I sort of looked forward to that day growing up really but then when I got started boxing at 13 and 14 got to 16 and I was like nearly 6 foot and I was sort of starting to fill out a little bit and he was like I think we're going to bring it forward so do you want to do it like Saturday <laughs> you know yeah so I was like okay yeah so we went down to the gym in Romford with like, which he owned which was a gym 
There's a few fighters in there. And we put the gloves on, quite small gloves as well. And he said, we're going to do like three two-minute rounds. So I was like, okay. So the bell went. I just remember him coming out and like the look on his face. Like, and when I tell this story, people do, especially if you're in a different kind of world, people are like, you know, and he was like letting them fly around my head, you know. And I was like, you know, defending. I'd caught a few, couple on the chin. And he started to get really tired, you know. And then in the second round, I just hit him to the body and he went down. And he was like, oh, oh, and he got up. And then I went over and sort of bashed him up and hit him again to the body and it was over. And he was like, when he says his greatest defeat, he was so happy. Like he couldn't stop phoning people to tell them. And the next day in the paper, it was Hearn, uh, Hearn's son, KO, 16-year-old Eddie. He started phoning the journalists going, my son knocked me out. Oh, it was unbelievable. He whacked me to the bottom. I was pounding him in the first round and he came back and it was like, it, I guess it was just like the badge of honour for him to say, because he said to me that when he was young, his mum, my grandmother, she used to clean houses and he said it sort of used to burn him inside that she had to clean the houses of successful people and he would always look at those houses and sort of, you know, one, want to have one when he was older, but two, almost like have a little bit of disdain for the people who lived there because they were like, you know, and he said, I'd, I was really worried that you were going to be one of those people, you know, like, because at school there were some kids that had money and I just, I just hated them for some reason. You know, it was a character flaw, really. But he said, no, I just was petrified that you'd be that kid that I hated growing up. So, well done, son. Well done. You know, and that was, it was a weird upbringing, really. That was an unconventional approach to parenting there. Well, Eddie tells us that when he was growing up, the last thing he wanted to do was work for his dad. He admits that was what he was destined to do, but inspired by the movie Jerry Maguire, of course, starring uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. as well as, of course, famously Tom Cruise. He sought out a job in sports marketing at 18. Now, he worked for ex-swimmer Duncan Goodhue, representing cricketers and golfers, eventually leading to Eddie setting up matchroom golf and getting involved in the poker circuit to cut a very... Very, 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 very long story short, he went to play the World Series of Poker over in Las Vegas. He ran into Audley Harrison. He was, of course, an Olympic gold medalist boxer whose career, it's fair to say, maybe wasn't on the decline. It was stalling, stalling yeah. badly. At this point, Eddie admits that boxing was also in the doldrums and initially he wasn't too keen to work with Audley. Eddie, though, saw a route back for the big man, win Europe Premium Prize Fighter, then the European Championship, and then maybe, just maybe, a shot at the world title against David Hay. Yeah, and, and Barry, his dad, wasn't having any of this plan, but ultimately Eddie talked Audley into doing Prize Fighter, which he won. So, on to his next bout, the next piece of the jigsaw puzzle. This was a bout against Michael Sprott in the European Championship fight, and it's fair to say this fight was not going as <laughs> planned. They were into the final round, and we pick up the story here. Audley had suffered an injury to one of his pecs. He'd lost every round, and let's let Eddie Hearn pick up this quite extraordinary story. And I remember I was wearing this terrible suit. like It looked it was like tin foil. You know, I was like dressing up for the night. Again, not having a clue what I was doing. Like, And my dad just looked at me and said, listen, don't worry, son. I said, you know what? I, f I said, if he would have won this fight, I honestly think we could have got him in the World Heavyweight Championship. Yeah, there's a minute to go. You know, he's, lo he's lost every round. My dad said to him, look, take it on the chin. He said, when the fight's over... He said, get in the ring, commiserate Audley. I'll get in, congratulate Michael Sprott. And we just, you know, we move on. And I went, I ain't getting in the ring. I said, I can't believe it. 
gave him a chance of a lifetime and he's lost every round. He's like, stop being a sulker, get in there after. So I was like, all right. As I looked up, Audley Harrison has unleashed a left hook from his boots and knocked Michael Sprott clean out in the last round of this fight, right? Like this in front of me. I'm straight in the ring. Audley, oh, I knew you'd do it. I never doubted you for a minute. He's like, and Audley was the most amazing talker. He's like, I told him, God, you know, he gave me my injury, but I knew if it was the last second of this fight, I would win. I was like, I felt the same just down there, you know. And then all of a sudden, like, the place has gone nuts. And then he's gone to me, the world heavyweight title. And I'm like, oh, no, I've got to do that one now. And, like, to be fair to Audley, Audley knew the business much better than me. And we both flew out to Las Vegas the next week to meet David Hay and Adam Booth. And next thing, we're negotiating a contract. I'm reading a contract for the world heavyweight title, which I have very little idea of what is in this contract. But Audley was almost, like, educating me as we go because he'd done it before. Anyway, a week later, I think it was about two million quid purse, of which we were on like 15% at the time. We haven't made money from boxing from years. My dad was thinking, wow, this is all right. And then it was on. You know, we'd sign the fight. Next thing, I was everywhere. You know, and I remember at that press conference, talk about now, me going in. Yeah. I was, I had to sit on my hands because they were shaking so much, you know. So I'd pick up a mic and, yeah, yeah. You know, I was giving it, sort of looking down at David Hay. And I, I, I was saying to him, you're, you know, you're overrated. You know, yeah, you can punch, but you've got no chin. And this guy's going to knock you out and blah, 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 blah. And everyone, like the media were loving it, thinking, who is this kid? Like they knew I was Barry Hearn's son, but, you know, he's really going for it. And I, as I was sort of shouting to David Hay, I could you know, feel, 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 so I was like, in the end, I was like, yeah. And, like, and I'm thinking, oh, God, I can't do the other hand. I kept sort of swapping hands and stuff like that. <clears throat> anyway, the build-up, it was massive. Like, Audley was brilliant. David Hay is a great self-promoter. You've got me now out of nowhere. And then the fight comes around, you know. And I'm like, Audley was amazing at getting you to believe. And I'm, I mean, I was so naive, but I was like, there is no way this guy cannot win. Even my dad, I heard him on the phone telling people, Oh, Harrison's going to be the new heavyweight world champion because he just spoke so well. And the night before the fight, we're in this Marriott outside of Manchester and he had all his friends and family there and he stood up and he was like, when I got in trouble as a kid, I said I wanted to get an education and they told me, you got no chance. I went out, I got first degree honours in business, blah, blah, blah. Then... At an old age, I wanted to turn to amateur boxing and I said I was going to become Olympic champion. And I went out and I won Olympic gold. And when I turned pro, I told them I'll become world heavyweight champion. And tomorrow night, with you as my friends and team, we shall become world heavyweight champion. And I'm just sitting down and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, in t- I'm just like, Audley, I can't believe this. I'm thinking, I am going to promote the world heavyweight champion. This is unbelievable. Change room before the fight, all huddling round, you know, a few prayers and stuff like that. He walks out to Phil Collins in the air tonight, you know, I can see a car. I'm like, I'm in the ring at this moment, just watching him thinking, I cannot believe that, you know, it could be three minutes, could be 36 minutes, but we are about to make history here tonight. And he got in the ring, he had like this hat on, massive six foot six. I thought, oh, Yes. And all of a sudden, I turn around and David Hay come out 
to ain't no stopping us now, you know. And he, he walked out, he stood on the apron like this. And then he looked at Audley Harrison and I just saw Audley's Adam, Adam's apple just go <coughs> like this. And I went, oh, I'm not as confident now. Anyway, got out of the ring, sat with my dad. He went, what do you think? I went, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> I think, I don't know. He looks a bit nervous now. Anyway, he didn't throw a punch in the fight, right? Neither of them did. And it got to the third round and everyone was like, what, what is he doing? And eventually David Hay just thought, what are you doing? And just walked straight up to him and chinned him and like a flurry of punches, it was all over. Anyway, the whole arena is going nuts, booing. Right? All my friends had come up, bought tickets. They're shouting at me, Weddy, what's that? What's that? Well, he's rubbish, he's rubbish. I'm like, what? Anyway, got into the ring, all, like, like, ushered Audley out. People are throwing stuff, like screaming abuse at him and everything. You know, we're like this, going back to the changing room. And as, I've, as we've just gone into the tunnel at the MENs, some bloke, Hearn, Hearn. And I've sort of looked up and he's in the seats, right? You are a <laughs> Yeah. And I'm like, oh, Jesus. Anyway, went back into the changing rooms. And I'm like, the media want, want to get in to talk to Audley because he talked it up so much. This was the problem. And so had I. So I got in the change room and I was like, and he was just sort of sitting there. And I went over to him, I went, what, what, what happened? And he went, oh, I just, you know, I knew he was, he was waiting for me to throw a punch. And if he, if I threw one, he was going to throw one back. I was like, I swear that's actually what happens. You know, anyway, so it was like, and I'm thinking, oh my God. Anyway, Audley goes, I said to Audley, what, just, we're going to do the press conference. And whatever happens, you've just got to say, I froze. And I may never forgive myself for this moment, but I've worked my whole life for it. But when it came down to it, I, yeah, yeah, okay. So I got to the press conference and media said, yeah, Audley, what have you got to say for yourself about that performance? He said, well, I thought the ref jumped in early, honestly. And I'm like, oh my God. Anyway, finished all the media and I walked downstairs. And it was about two o'clock in the morning. And as I'm walking out, down the corridor of the Manchester Arena backstage David Hay is at the other end and he's coming this way and I'm like oh no because I've just basically the whole build up I've just told him he's overrated he's this he's that I'm like this is going to be so embarrassing and as he come towards me I walked past him and he went well done well done I was like like as if to say you obviously knew all along but you played the game tremendously well. <laughs> it's a great story, that. And it is also the boxers themselves know that the whole thing is just a game. Just a game. To promote the fight. So all of this facade of vitriol or animosity is often just a construct. Yeah, it's kind of the ultimate fake it till you make it story. That's and, it. and also, oftentimes people use that in a way that... It, it, it can be good sometimes. Well, it can I, be a positive thing to have so much confidence in yourself and just go for mm. it, even if you don't know what you're doing. And the point was made, of course, Eddie can't fight the fight. That's up to Audley to do that. And he froze in the spotlight of that world title fight. But what did Eddie do? He held up his end of the bargain because it was a 22,000 sellout at the then Manchester Evening News Arena. What then happened in the weeks after that? 
Darren Barker, who was the European champion at the time, calling, asking Eddie to be his promoter. Kel Brook's father did likewise. And then Carl Foch, who was Britain's yeah. number one boxer at the time. They all came a-calling for Eddie off the back of his success yeah. in pushing Audley Harrison into the limelight. I mean, it's fair to say he could sell a fridge to an Eskimo, yeah, as could. the old saying goes. We're going to get back to our conversation with Eddie, and we wanted to finish on the art of selling, because his gift of the gab is legendary. Anyone who's been tuning into this will, I guess, have already cottoned on to that. And we asked him to share the best advice his dad, Barry, had given him and his guide to the art of selling. I think sales um, sales is a, a transfer of emotions, right? So to be a great salesman, you have to believe in your product and you have to believe in what you're selling. Because I can sell anything, but if I believe in what I'm selling, then you're buying, you know? And, and, and that, that transcends across all products. If you're selling photocopiers up and down the country, if you know in the boot of your van, you've got a machine that really isn't great. You know, the ink runs dry quite quickly. You know, when you load up the paper, it doesn't flow very well through the trays, you know, and sometimes it can just get a little bit sticky on the way. Like, you, you know, and you're, you're in there and you're flogging. But if you've got a wonderful machine in the car that never goes wrong, you know, it's economic on the ink, you know, you can load up that tray and it just flows out beautifully out of it. I mean, that, that like, for me... Everything's, yeah, I know, but everything's storytelling, right? And this is what I do in, in sport because we're telling stories, but we're telling true stories about journeys of fighters, aspirations of fighters, you know, the moment of combat, that moment of glory. And every fighter has an incredible story. So it's my job to get you emotionally invested in what I'm doing. And that is a product. Could be a fight could be a world darts championships could be the snooker championships at the crucible but you have to it's like i said it's that transfer of emotion where you buy in to what i'm saying so if you need a photocopier and all of a sudden you realize this this is the photocopier i need you're in same with a car same with a house i just do it for events but again it comes down to it and sometimes you may not see the difference when i'm selling an average show versus a great show, but I do, I feel it inside. You know, it's, it's just one flows and one is a bit of an effort. It's why this show genuinely, like I could talk about it all, like I can stand up on any platform proud to say, this is a cracker. So in terms of sales, that's really the key is to speak with passion and speak with intent because there's a difference between blagging and selling. You know, I can blag anything but when you're selling when you're actually in that moment of of having a great product and that's what our business has been about building great products and great events so in terms of advice he's given me you know lots of different advice i mean he, he's the king of simplicity right if you've ever got a problem you sit down with my dad you know you could feel like your world is about to implode and he'll just sit down and go right listen that's what we're gonna do bomb 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 and you go Right, okay, and, and you're back. And that's, you know, keeping it, and, and I always live by the mantra of simplicity because we're, we're in a, an era of overthinking, right? Where, you know, people are, you know, we're talking about mental health, we're talking, and that's all real, but it's always been there. You know, it's not that, it's just we're talking about it more now, but it's how it's being handled, you know, and, and simplicity is key. 
for me, I always find like if you're losing a bit of direction or you're struggling a little bit, keep it simple. You know, write down some mornings, Frank and those guys, they take the mic out of me because I've just got notepads. Right? I use notepads. I don't use laptops. I use my phone and a notepad. And I write things down. And if I'm just sort of straying a little bit, I'm losing a bit of focus, I'll just say, right, today. And I'll write down 10 things that I'm going to do today. And they could be menial. They could be putting petrol in the car, walking the dog, you know, stopping at Tesco's on the way home to get something. But it's just like all of a sudden it just brings you back into focus, sort of brings you your alignment back. And there's too many people these days, you see it, you know, social media, whether it's uh, David Goggins or whether it's Steve Fork, Harvey, you know, all these guys are brilliant. But it's like we live in a world of bluster and so many people have got medium and long-term goals and strategies. They're all a complete waste of time because no one's prepared to take term take care of the short-term problems and that's that's the period that's most important when you're working on anything you know when we came to Abu Dhabi we were talking about yeah we want to do you know we want a long-term vision in the Middle East and and that's the the dream but what about all the nuts and bolts to take care of what we got to do for November 5th and everything that comes around it and once you overcome that and you you deliver a successful event then everything else can go don't don't focus on down the road focus on this on the moment now so yeah, he's taught me loads. I mean, in sales, he would always say to me, always leave a little bit of bread in the fish's mouth. Right? And I can hear him saying it, you know. And what that means really is always give value. Don't be greedy. And that, that's something that sort of, as a business, he, he's always relied, you know, we're not looking. To, and, and again, same here with this region. Don't come in and just, you know, try and, you know, be aggressive, be greedy, take liberties, come in, deliver value and everything else will flow off it. You deliver value, you deli- you build partnerships, you will grow from there and always leave a little bit of bread in the fish's mouth. He says it all the time and that, that's, that's key and if you think about it, that's right. Always leave people walking, walk away thinking we got value. That applies to a partner out here, that, that applies to a customer, you know, and that's where you build relationships with customers as well. I want people to leave our events and shows and say, wow, I got value for money. I'm going back. And that brand, that trust, that loyalty transcends globally. And we, we never get the credit really for what we've done globally because we are the only global promotional company in boxing, the only one. And every week we're in a different territory, right? And the brand that we've built is now establishing that trust and loyalty worldwide with fight fans that when we turn up, you're not always talent-driven. Talent will always be key. The fights that you do will always be the driver. But now we're going into markets and people are saying, Matchroom, Eddie Hearn, we know them. We've seen their work. We're going to go. And it's the same as the UFC. But UFC, have, you know, they're on, that, that's where we aspire to be. But the UFC have built a business and a brand that relies on quality and entertainment and value for money. So when they come here or when they come go to any city in anywhere around the world, particularly in Europe, it's UFC. We're buying because of that, that brand recognition and that, that trust with the consumer. Some sage advice there on sales, something that I'm not too good at, sounds, but uh, <laughs> certainly could take a few notes out of Eddie's book there. It was such a fun chat. I mean, we're going to pop the whole thing yeah. on YouTube because it was, as you've mentioned, we spent about an hour and 10 minutes with him. He was very generous. We've got five questions time. in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we literally, I think, seven, we counted questions yeah. over an hour and 10 minutes. He is brilliant. He's, He's great. Massive thanks to Eddie Hearn. 
The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 